Welcome to Live at the National Constitution Center, the podcast sharing live conversations and debates hosted by the Center. I'm Jackie McDermott, the show's producer. The Anti-Defamation League, or ADL, recently presented its annual Supreme Court Term Review Panel, hosted virtually at the National Constitution Center. The program was moderated by Dahlia Lithwick, veteran Supreme Court journalist and host of the Slate podcast Amicus. Dahlia was joined by Dean Erwin Chemerinsky of Berkeley Law, former Solicitor General of the United States and Supreme Court advocate Paul Clement, Georgetown Law Professor Frederick Lawrence, and NYU Law Professor Melissa Murray. They reviewed some of the biggest cases of this past term. This panel was streamed live on July 8, 2021. Here's Dahlia to get the conversation started. I want to, um, before we start, just add my voice to the deep gratitude, um, both to Karen, Steve, and the team at uh, ADL, and to Jeff and his amazing team at the National Constitution Center. It is so, so, so destabilizing on the one hand to do this on Zoom, inclusive and wonderful on the other hand to do this on Zoom. We want to thank everybody who has tuned in today. Um, and I'm just going to say there's an immense amount of terrain to cover and we always gallop through it. So please, please put your questions in the Q&A and Karen will get to them at the end. We promise we'll cover as many of them as we can. And with that said, I guess I will just give my tiny precatory overview before I turn it over to Erwin to give the uh, masterful, comprehensive overview. And and that is simply to say we saw a huge change uh, at the court this term with the death of Justice Ginsburg, the elevation of Amy Coney Barrett. And as a consequence, with the term winding down in the last week, you probably heard one of several narratives. Either you heard the media saying this was a 6-3 supermajority conservative juggernaut at the term, or you heard this was an incredibly moderate, temperate, uh, humble term with a big concentration of centrist jurists at the middle of the court. Um, or you heard that this was a conservative court that wasn't conservative enough. So one of those narratives has to be true. And helpfully, uh, we have some of the smartest people uh, in the country to help us think through which of those narratives is true, or if they're all true, or none of them are true, or if we're just in the middle of one of those Rorschach terms that make it very, very confounding to say what happened. So uh, that said, I turn it to Erwin to give us his kind of table setting, lay of the land, contours of the term, what happened, and what we can conclude from these past weeks. Thank you, Dahlia. It's such an honor and pleasure to be part of this again, to be part of this terrific panel. As Dahlia just said, the most important change in the Supreme Court in the last year was due to the death of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg on Friday, September 18th, and the confirmation and swearing in of Amy Coney Barrett on Monday, October 26th. It's been often remarked that every time there's a new justice, it's a different court. It's especially so when you've replaced a very liberal justice with a very conservative justice. I think we should think of this term, most of all, as a Supreme Court in transition. I neither want to overstate the importance of Barrett replacing Ginsburg, nor underestimate its importance. I think a statistic from last term is particularly revealing. A year ago, in October term 2019, the Supreme Court decided 53 cases with signed opinions after briefing oral argument. By the way, that's the fewest number of cases decided in a year since 1862. Last year, there were 14 5-4 decisions of those 53 cases. In 10 of the 14, the majority was Roberts, Thomas, Alito, Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh. All we know about Justice Barrett, from her writings as a law professor, from her time on the United States Court of Appeals in the Seventh Circuit, and from her opinions this year on the Supreme Court, is that she's quite conservative. So replacing Ginsburg with Barrett in those cases last year likely to change the margin, but not the outcome. They likely did in 6-3 rather than 5-4 decisions. But there were two decisions of the 14 5-4 rulings a year ago where the majority was Roberts, Ginsburg, Breyer, Sonner, and Kagan. They were important cases. 
One struck down a Louisiana law imposing restrictions on abortion. The other said that President Trump could not rescind DACA, the Deferred Action of Child Arrival Program. In all likelihood, those cases would have come out differently with Barrett rather than Ginsburg being on the court. I look at last year's statistics, and on the basis of them, would predict two things about this term. One is, we will see more 6-3 decisions. There are six conservative justices appointed by Republican presidents, three liberal justices appointed by Democratic presidents. Second, we're likely to see fewer 5-4 decisions where the liberals are in the majority. Simple arithmetic explains this. The liberal justices would now have to get two votes rather than just one, and they need to get two from a court that has five staunch conservatives in Thomas, Alito, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett, and one moderate conservative in Roberts. And those predictions came true this year. It's exactly what we saw. The court decided 54 cases with signed opinions after briefing an oral argument. That's notable because the second fewest number decided in a year since 1862, only last year was less. But a year ago, the court had canceled some oral arguments and put cases over to October of 2020. The 54 cases this year is really remarkable. Of those 54 cases, 12 were 6-3 decisions and 6 were 5-4 decisions. Also, there was no 5-4 decision this year that was ideologically divided where the liberals were in the majority. So if you want to answer Dahlia's question about was it a conservative or a liberal court, at least in the divided cases, the conservatives prevailed without exception. Few other thoughts by way of overview to the term. First, no longer is John Roberts the ideological median justice on the court. A year ago, when we talked about the Supreme Court, we could say it was truly the Roberts Court. We always name it after the chief. But also, a year ago, there were four justices more conservative than Roberts, Thomas, Alito, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and four more liberal than Roberts, Ginsburg, Breyersner, and Kagan. That really put Roberts at the center. He was the swing justice. It is reflected in the fact that a year ago, he dissented only twice. He was in the majority in 97% of all the cases. But now there are five justices more conservative than Roberts. Thomas, Alito, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett. This affects much of what the court does. Think of it in terms of granting of certiorari. It takes four votes to take a case. The foremost conservative justices might have been reluctant to take certain cases if they were uncertain whether they have Roberts a fifth vote. But now they know they've likely got five conservative votes, and I think it will really change the agenda of the Supreme Court. I don't want to minimize the role of John Roberts. He's still the chief. He still assigns who writes the majority opinion when he's in the majority. But one interesting statistic this term, it was Brett Kavanaugh who was the justice most often in the majority, being there 97% of the time. Second, there was no pretense of judicial deference by the court this term. There was a time when judicial conservatism was about deference to elected officials. We didn't see that this year. In fact, as I went through the list of cases we're talking about, in almost every instance, the government lost, with the court repeatedly striking down federal and state statutes. I think it makes it a very different kind of conservatism and certainly has implications for what likely to see in the future. Finally, as we begin talking about this term, I want to provide my own caution against generalizing from a small sample. We all learned, someplace in our education, the risks of generalizing from a small sample. I was concerned by the generalizations that I saw in the media that Dahlia was referring to. After all, this is only one term of the Supreme Court. Justice Barrett didn't participate in the oral arguments in the October session. And so she participated in about 40 cases, and always some of those are not controversial at all. As we'll talk about at the end, I think it's next term, when the Supreme Court's deciding cases about abortion and gun rights and maybe affirmative action 
we have a much better sense of what the newly constituted Roberts Court is going to be like. That's why I said at the outset, I think we should best think of this year as a term in transition. Erwin, thank you so much. Um, one of the most interesting aspects of the term happened, a lot of it happened uh, in a set of orders and decisions that came down on the so-called shadow docket, which is to say these are cases that were not necessarily fully briefed or argued. Uh, they came down as a sequence of emergency orders around state and local government orders shutting down and imposing limits during COVID. Uh, I should note before I ask Paul to explain uh, the COVID cases that the ADL brief that sided with the state shutdown orders, uh, arguing that the free exercise clause never intended to require exemptions from public safety laws, that and the other ADL amicus briefs, and I'll reference them as we go along, uh, but for much, much fuller exposition of what the ADL argued uh, in those cases, please, please look at your materials. That said, uh, I'm so delighted to call upon Paul. Both, Paul, if you, uh, you have five or six minutes, so if you want to reflect on uh, what Erwin just said or what I just said, but also just asking you to help us understand what happened in these COVID shutdown cases, because I think, as I suggested, not only did it not fully get surfaced at the court, but I think it was not fully surfaced in the media either. Thank you, Dahlia. Um, that's a tall order for six minutes, but I'll give it a try. It, it probably, just to echo something Irwin said, it probably says a fair amount about this term that the first cases we're going to talk about are cases that were not merits cases, uh, but were on the so-called shadow docket. And I think that underscores both that the main, you know, the main cases on what Supreme Court lawyers sometimes talk about as the plenary docket or the merits docket are not where all the action are. Is it, you know, and and also they those cases on the main docket um, sometimes can be sleepier than the cases that are handled in these emergency orders. That was clear for much of the Trump administration, where the court was very active in these emergency orders, and it's very true of these COVID cases. So the arc of these COVID cases then also tells us a lot about the court in transition, because the first two efforts to get injunctive relief from an order of lower courts that left in place state restrictions, those first two efforts to get emergency relief were not successful. One of those arose out of California. Uh, the other arose out of Nevada. And the Nevada case is worth pausing on just for a second, because that was a case where arguably the claim of the people advancing the first, the free exercise claim was maybe the strongest because the state of Nevada, perhaps predictably, was putting greater restrictions on worship and attendance at church than on attendance at casinos. And from the perspective, I think, of some of the more conservative justices, that really put a, a, a real focus on the problem here, that a state was making different decisions when it came to commercial enterprises that were perhaps important for the long-term economic success of the state and giving less preference and less preferential treatment to religious worship and attendance at church. But notwithstanding that favorable context for the parties pushing the free exercise claim, uh, in those first cases, the court denied injunctive relief. And then just a few months later, uh, in a series of cases, uh, the court began to grant relief. And that was principally in cases coming out of New York and California. Uh, what changed in the interim? Well, I suppose two things. Uh, one th thing that changed is that we did get a little bit more experience with the pandemic and a better sense of what kind of restrictions were really necessary. But I think the principal thing that changed was that Justice Barrett was confirmed and came onto the court and changed the composition of the court. And there were now five votes to uh, essentially stop state efforts to treat religious uh, exercise less favorably than other activities for purposes of these kinds of pandemic-related restrictions. And I think that probably more than almost any other case on the merits docket this term, this, this case, these cases really show that the change in composition can have a dramatic effect on the results in the cases and the role of the Chief Justice. In the first two cases that I mentioned, the Chief Justice voted with 
the more liberal justices to deny relief and wrote in one of the opinions a separate writing that really explained his view that although he was quite sympathetic to the claims of the religious entities, and I think the rest of his jurisprudence on the free exercise clause bears that sympathy out, but notwithstanding that deep well of sympathy on the chief's part, he really thought that given the public health emergency, this was an issue that the courts should just stay out of. And then just a few months later, it's the chief justice in dissent in these, in these orders, and it is a majority that doesn't need the chief justice any longer. And I think that's one thing that really does uh, affect perhaps the future trajectory of the court is not just the change in composition, but the idea that the court no longer will go as slowly or as quickly as John Roberts dictates in some of these important areas of the law. Just a word or two about what the court actually reasoned in these decisions. And these are all per curiam opinions and you know exactly how much impact these decisions themselves will have outside of the COVID context. I think you know time will tell, but I think they give us a great snapshot of where the court is on issues like this. And what they really show is at the threshold, a view of a majority of the court that the, the states and local governments and the federal government presumably really do need to treat religious exercise equally with secular activities. And in a sense, the tie goes to the religious activity. If you have a state that says that, for example, you can have you know, no more than 50 people at religious services, no more than 25 people at a particular kind of commercial exercise, and no more than 100 people at a different kind of commercial enterprise, essentially the gist of all of these opinions is that's still discriminating against the religious worship. It doesn't matter that they treated, that the state treated some uh, non-religious activities the same or worse than the religious activity. If you can essentially point to one comparable non-religious activity that is subjected to uh, better treatment, that's enough to get you into strict scrutiny. And the last thing I'll say about this uh, without stealing anyone's thunder is one of the big decisions on this court's term was the Fulton case, where there was some sense that the court might overrule the Smith decision that had generally subjected religious laws to non-demanding scrutiny. And what you see in these COVID cases is that the trigger, even without overruling the Smith decision, the trigger for triggering strict scrutiny in these religious claims, I think has become much easier to satisfy as a result of these COVID decisions. So Fred, why don't you take a minute to respond to Paul on the COVID cases? So two quick things. One, actually I'll respond to you you and your challenge about which of these various configurations is at play. I think all of the above is probably the right answer. Uh, what's going to determine which one we're in? It's got something to do with the issues that are involved. The cases I'm going to be talking about later today include some unanimous opinions and near unanimous opinions. On the other hand, this shadow docket set of cases and the COVID cases really show us how the 5-4 operates, as, as Paul said. So, so what makes this one fall into the 5-4? One of the places I think it's fair to predict you're going to see the biggest impact of this growingly conservative court is in the area of religious freedom. This is clearly a major issue a part of the program for some of the most conservative justices. And so the articulation of this most favored nation status for religion uh, really takes hold in the shadow doctrine. Likely you'll see that now go over to the merits doctrine in, in future cases. Other thing I would mention, and this was clearly mentioned in a very uh, vigorous dissent by Justice Kagan, it's not just the, that the most favored nation status that the court is using that says if you do something for anyone else, you've got to do that for religion, that the court is also willing to say we're the ones who are going to say what's comparable and what's not comparable. So the case involving home worship, the state had said we're treating all home activities the same, religious and non-religious, and the five justices of the court said that's not the right comparison. We will look at outside the home and compare that with this restriction inside the home. So that's a very aggressive move to, to put religious freedom really as a, as a first among, among rights. And it's also worth noting, I, I will say that in the statistics that Irwin shared at the beginning, uh, it didn't include the shadow docket. And so I think I, I will pop in the chat in a minute 
Professor Steve Vladek, who I think ran the numbers, uh, including all of the non-merits docket that Paul referenced, and maybe it'll give folks a sense of how the numbers shake out if you look at what was happening in some of these procurium orders. Melissa, I want to turn to you and I want to stay on this question of religious liberty. I feel like certainly as long as I've been doing this event at the Constitution Center, we've been having this conversation about what feels like the collision course between civil rights and public accommodation laws on the one hand and claims of religious dissenters that they cannot be uh, forced to do things that violate their own religious conscience. And as Paul intimated, Fulton uh, was meant to be, I think we thought it was going to be the big bang where we figured out how the court thought about this. So I want to give you uh, sort of ample time, six, six, seven minutes to talk about Fulton. And maybe at the end also, you can talk about Grimm um, and, and just maybe talk about where the court chose not to go and help flesh out what I think Paul and Fred have really um, telegraphed is going to be an area that more and more and more is going to take up take up the court's time and uh, ADL's time. I should note that ADL filed a brief in Fulton, uh, siding with the city of Philadelphia. Again, please look at your materials to see details. Uh, but Melissa, can you kind of give a give your best shot at explaining what did and didn't happen in Fulton this year? Sure. Thanks, Dahlia, and thanks so much for having me today. Um, as Dahlia said, Fulton it was one of the most watched cases on this term's docket, in part because it was expected to be a rather maximalist decision in favor of religious exercise. The court did not go all the way. It was asked to overrule a 1990 decision, Employment Division versus Smith. It declined to do so. But it wasn't a minimalist decision either. Um, it was decided nine to zero, um, written by the chief justice. But its unanimity, I think, is can be characterized, as Dahlia put it, as a kind of phonemity. Um, it's not a unanimous decision that is narrow. It does move the law in a more conservative direction. And again, toward this idea of religious freedom being a sort of favored nation place where uh, this is a right that is preeminent among other kinds of civil rights. So the case um, took up where 2018's Masterpiece Cake Shop left off. Um, it was supposed to decide this question of whether religious liberty trumps civil rights mandates. In the case, Catholic Social Services, which administered the foster care services for the city of Philadelphia, argued that it was entitled to an exemption from the city's non-discrimination policy, which prohibited discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. The lower courts concluded that the anti-discrimination policy was a neutral law of general applicability and under Employment Division versus Smith, it determined that the application of the, the non-discrimination policy to CSS did not constitute a violation of the free exercise clause. CSS appealed that decision to the Supreme Court and in so doing asked the court to revisit and to overrule Employment Division versus Smith. In a unanimous decision written by the Chief Justice, the court held that the application of the non-discrimination policy did burden CSS's exercise of its religion because it required the organization to choose between curtailing its mission or approving relationships inconsistent with its beliefs. The question was whether or not the Constitution allowed the city to impose such a burden. And under Employment Division versus Smith, such a burden would be permissible because the law ostensibly would be a neutral law of general applicability. But the court in that unanimous decision held that Smith did not apply because the non-discrimination policy contained a system for granting exemptions. And in that system, there was discretion afforded to the decision maker. And so although the city had never granted an exemption from the non-discrimination policy, the possibility of being able to do so meant that the policy could not be considered a neutral law of general applicability, and Smith did not apply. So that sort of canny turn took the question of whether to overrule Smith off the table for closing a more maximalist decision, but it nonetheless pushed the court to review this policy under strict scrutiny because Smith was not applicable. And under strict scrutiny, the court determined that the policy failed, that it was an impermissible burden on religion. So Catholic Social Services won, although it did not win quite as big as it could have. It's worth noting that although the court avoided that thornier question of whether to overrule its 1990 precedent in Employment Division versus Smith, 
there were three justices on the court who made very clear that they were certainly willing and perhaps even eager to take up the question of Smith's continued vitality. Um, In a concurrence, Justice Amy Coney Barrett, who sided with the Chief Justice on this issue, nonetheless expressed some skepticism of Smith. And in a stinging concurrence that really read more like a dissent, Justice Alito made clear that he would have taken up the question of Smith. Related to this issue of LGBTQIA rights, um, the court declined to grant certiorari in another case, Gloucester County School Board versus Grimm, and that case presented the question of whether Title IX or the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution requires schools to allow transgender students to use multi-user restrooms designated for the opposite biological sex. Because the court denied certiorari here, the Fourth Circuit's opinion, which held that the school district violated federal law when it barred students from using the restroom that aligned with its with their chosen gender identity, um, will stand. And so the denial of review was celebrated as a victory for LGBTQIA rights. Um, but it does not foreclose the possibility that the court will in the future take up a similar issue related to transgender rights. So still a pretty unsettled landscape in terms of LGBTQIA rights and certainly in the conflict between religious liberty and civil rights protections. And Erwin, will you take a minute and just respond to what Melissa laid out? I very much agree with Melissa's analysis. There's always a tension between liberty and equality. Any law that prohibits discrimination limits the freedom to discriminate. But the court has made the choice for well over half a century that stopping discrimination is more important than protecting a freedom to discriminate. But now we have a majority of the Supreme Court that says that people, on account of their religion, can discriminate against others. The court says, as Melissa pointed out, that any law that has discretion that imposes a burden on religion must meet strict scrutiny. Most laws have some discretion. Doesn't matter, the court says, whether the discretion has ever been exercised. It doesn't matter whether there's ever been discrimination against religion. I think this largely undercuts the Smith decision, even though it leaves Smith on the books. We're going to see a lot of cases about this in the years to come. Employers, on account of their religion, claim a right to discriminate gay, lesbian, and transgender employees. Businesses that refuse to serve same-sex couples. And I think we have a majority that's going to protect such discrimination when it's on religious grounds. Fred has the privilege and honor of getting to present the case that was certainly the most fun uh, to cover this year. That is the case of the swearing cheerleader. It had such delicious facts. And before I ask Fred to lay out what happened, I want to point out again that ADL joined in a brief urging the court to ensure that when it comes to off-campus student speech, uh, schools can certainly regulate student bullying, harassment, or threats, but not speech that is merely perceived to disrupt school activities. Again, in your materials, take it away, Fred, the case of the swearing cheerleader. Um, she was not the swearing cheerleader, um, and that, that's what raised the uh, what turns out to be one of the most significant campus free speech cases in years, arguably since the celebrated Tinker against Des Moines Independent Community School District case in 1969. Tinker, best known for the uh, the celebrated language that students do not shed their constitutional rights to freedom of speech or expression at the schoolhouse gate. But of course, what Tinker also did is it gave schools the right and it recognized a special interest of schools to regulate free uh, speech and expression in certain instances, those instances, and I'm quoting here, that materially disrupt classwork or involve substantial disorder or invasion of the rights of others. So that's the background. Is Tinker going to apply here? And let's talk about what happened in a, it's not armbands the way to protest as it was in Tinker. Uh, This is a cheerleader who got knocked off or did not make the varsity cheerleading squad. So over the weekend and away from school, she posted a picture of herself on Snapchat with the caption of effing school, effing softball, effing cheer, effing everything. And for those of you who are wondering whether I was going to say effing or something else, you now know the answer. Uh, She, of course, did not use effing, but but spelled it all the way out. Uh, After finding out about the post, uh, school officials suspended her from the softball team for a year for violating uh, school rules and team rules. 
She sued the school, claiming that the suspension violated her First Amendment rights. She won in both the district court and in the Court of Appeals, the Third Circuit. Third Circuit, uh, taking this up uh, a higher notch, it went much further than the district court. The district court granted summary judgment, citing Tinker, uh, and finding that her Snapchat post did not cause a substantial disruption at school, and therefore it reverts back to that protection not being shed at the schoolhouse gates. The Third Circuit affirmed the judgment, but held that Tinker, that part of Tinker that allows the regulation of expression, does not apply at all because schools uh, are limited at the schoolhouse gate, and there's no special line, uh, license for schools to regulate off-campus speech. Now, this, of course, raised a concern for many of us, and that's a big piece of the ADL brief here, because it would limit schools' ability to regulate cyberbullying uh, or other kinds of activity that is, takes place physically off campus, but has an impact on campus, including, for example, uh, academic integrity issues. The court, in an 8-1 opinion uh, issued by, uh, authored by Justice Breyer, uh, affirmed the holding for the student, but rejected the Third Circuit's approach, saying that while public schools do have a special interest in regulating some off-campus speech, the schools cited special interest in this case of promoting good manners, preventing disruption, uh, were not sufficient to overcome the student's interest in free speech. The court said that a school's special interest in regulating on-campus speech does not always disappear when that speech physically takes place off-campus, as it did here. However, there are three features that the court mentioned in particular with respect to this off-campus, physically off-campus speech or expression. Uh, first, off-campus speech normally falls within the purview of parents or family or guardians rather than the school to be regulating. Second, off-campus speech regulations could cover virtually everything that a student has the right to do or say. And finally, that the school has an interest in protecting the, a, a, school, a student's unpopular off-campus expression because the free marketplace of ideas is a cornerstone of a representation of our democracy, schools playing a major role in representation, representation of our democracy. Using that framework, Justice Breyer said that her interest in free expression, the student's interest in free expression, outweighed the school's interest in regulating her speech here. Uh, the Snapchat post constituted criticism, in fact, uh, directed towards the school, which would primarily fall within the scope of the First Amendment. It may not be the way in which most of us would express that criticism, but clearly it was her way, very poignantly, of making that criticism. The context of the speech, uh, from her personal cell phone, off campus, and over the weekend, uh, diminished the school's interest in punishing her and regulating her expression. Looking at the school's argument that it was promoting good manners and punishing vulgar speech, the court noted uh, it's really parents and not the school who have the primary responsibility over weekend and away from school conduct. The post, although it was the subject of much discussion on school, really it was just for a few days. It clearly upset some students, but it did not cause, according to Justice Breyer, that kind of substantial disruption that was envisioned in Tinker. And finally, Justice Breyer uh, answers the question we're all thinking, because it's hard not to describe this case in somewhat comical terms because of the nature of it. He says, no, but don't fall into that trap. He said it might be tempting to dismiss the plaintiff's words as unworthy of robust First Amendment protection, but sometimes it's necessary to protect the superfluous in order to preserve the necessary. There's only one dissent in this case. It's Justice Thomas, who takes the position that schools historically have had the authority to regulate off-campus speech so long as it is a proximate tendency to harm the school. He felt that this fell into that category. He would have regulated it. Justice Breyer writing for eight justices on the court took a different view. And Paul, I'm going to give you two minutes to, if you can, uh, help us understand whether Mahanoy, the speech case, created some rule going forward uh, that, that we can apply, or if it was just a kind of one ride only, very, very interesting fun facts, but it's not clear going forward what the rule is in terms of student speech. Yeah, Dahlia, and, and I'll say two things about the, the, the decision. The first, just to answer your question directly, uh, you know, I, I think that it's a little hard to discern a bright line rule from this majority opinion, but I think that's entirely intentional. And I think it reflects the fact that Justice Breyer was the author of the opinion. 
And, you know, obviously a lot was said during this term um, on editorial pages and other places about whether Justice Breyer should step down. And uh, obviously one of the things we're not talking about today is uh, his retirement and his replacement or any of that. But this decision, I think, sort of shows Justice Breyer in uh, kind of his full form. Um, This is a classic Justice Breyer opinion. It is hard to imagine that any other member of the current court could have written this opinion in this way. The ability to identify the factors that are relevant, um, identify the countervailing factors, resolve them in this case without determining for all future cases which of the three factors that he identified as relevant is necessary or sufficient is kind of classic common law judging and classic Justice Breyer. And I think almost in varying degrees, every other member of the current court is less comfortable with that kind of reasoning and that kind of judicial writing. And so I I guess I will say that, you know, whenever Justice Breyer decides to retire, this is something that I think the chief will miss. Because I think, you know, part of the reason Justice Breyer ended up with this case is because the chief thought that this case needed that kind of opinion and Justice Breyer was the right person to deliver that kind of opinion. The only other thing I'll say very briefly is this case does underscore that these justices disagree on a lot of things, but they all agree that free speech is very important and should be robustly protected. This was not foreordained to be an eight one decision. And the fact that only one justice dissented does underscore this is a pro free speech court. This brings us to I want to say the most important case of the term, uh, but I think for a lot of people it isn't. And I think that how you freight this case determines uh, the answer to my opening question, which is, was this a 6-3 term? Uh, Brnovich was, I think we can at least agree, a really seminal voting rights case. Uh, It was one of the very few 6-3 splits, if you look at the pattern Irwin led with. Um, implicating Section 2 of the Voting Rights Amendment. Uh, the ADL joined 52 other organizations on an amicus brief that was led by the Le- Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights, supporting the Ninth Circuit decision. Irwin, uh, doing Brnovich in six minutes is not an enviable task, but have at it. Thank you. The Voting Rights Act of 1965 is one of the most important laws adopted in my lifetime. It did two major things. One, it said that jurisdictions with a history of race discrimination in voting would need to get pre-approval, pre-clearance, before they had a significant change in their election systems. Eight years ago in 2013, in Shelby County versus Holder, the Supreme Court effectively nullified and ended the pre-clearance procedure. Interestingly, in the Burbage case, Justice Kagan and her dissent present statistics but what the effect of Shelby County has been. She said, since 2013, there's been a 2.5% decrease in voting by people of color, reversing what had been a consistent trend in the opposite direction since 1965. The second thing that the Voting Rights Act did is in section two. It says that state and local governments cannot have election systems that discriminate against racial minorities or against certain language minorities. In 1980, In City of Mobile versus Bolden, the Supreme Court said that there has to be intentional discrimination in order to violate this. In 1982, Congress passed Voting Rights Act amendments to say that proof of a discriminatory impact would be enough to show a violation of the law. That's what Brnovich is about, is whether or not there's sufficient proof of a discriminatory impact against minority voters. It involves two provisions of Arizona law. One said that in order for a vote to be counted, the person would have to cast it in his or her own precinct. The second said that only a person or a relative could turn in an absentee ballot to eliminate so-called ballot harvesting. The Ninth Circuit, in a 7-4 to en banc ruling, found that these provisions had a racially discriminatory effect. There's been much more shifts with regard to precincts in minority communities, Statistics show an adverse effect on people of color. Also, in terms of limits in turning absentee ballots, the court found especially this has an adverse effect on Native Americans. As Dahlia said, 
the Supreme Court, in a 6-3 to three decision, divided along ideological lines, reversed the Ninth Circuit. Justice Alito wrote the opinion for the court. He said prior cases about Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act involved so-called vote dilution. They were mostly about when redrawing election districts had a racially discriminatory impact. He said, this is the first time we've dealt with time, place, manner restrictions on voting. He said under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, it's important to look at the totality of the circumstances. He then identified five considerations to be used in determining whether there's a violation of Section 2. First, the extent of the burden imposed on voters. And he stressed that all laws impose some burden on voting. Second, the extent to which the rules depart from practices that were followed in 1982. Why 1982? Well, that's when the Voting Rights Act amendments were adopted. Third, the scale of the racially discriminatory impact. Quite significantly, Justice Alito said, the fact that there's some racially disparate impact isn't enough for a violation. He said, given differences based on race in employment, wealth, education, we can expect that there will be a racially disparate impact to some extent. Fourth, what are the other opportunities provided to vote? The more there are other ways that somebody can vote, the less the court's going to be worried about restrictions. And fifth, what's the strength of the state's interest, especially the state's interest in preventing fraud? Justice Alito was clear that the usual way of approaching disparate impact followed under other statutes isn't here. Justice Kagan wrote a vehement dissent. It's reminiscent to me of Justice Ginsburg's dissent in Shelby County. She pointed out that none of the requirements that Justice Alito points to are part of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. She said the court is abandoning its usual approach to racially disparate impact under federal statutes. And she talked about how difficult it would be to show violations of Section 2 in the future. If you look at the five factors that Justice Alito pointed to, all make it difficult to prove racial discrimination, all make it very likely that the government is going to prevail. Why does this matter so much? We know that many states, like recently Georgia, Florida, Arkansas, have imposed significant restrictions on voting. There's strong evidence that these have a racially discriminatory impact. The Justice Department has already brought a challenge to Georgia's law on this basis. The Supreme Court's decision it's going to make it much harder to be able to bring successful challenges to these laws. In our country today, there are two very different narratives about voting. The Republican narrative is that voting fraud is a significant problem and that the government has to deal with it. You certainly find that in Justice Alito's majority opinion. The Democratic narrative is that voter suppression is a major problem and that fraud is non-existent or rare. Six justices were appointed by Republican presidents, and they accepted that Republican narrative. The three dissenting justices appointed by Democratic presidents took the Democratic narrative. And Melissa, you have the unenviable uh, task of adding nuance to that um, in about two minutes, if you would. So I agree with everything that Erwin has said. Um, I will also note, though, um, that what Brnovich doesn't make clear is how the Roberts Court has really been quite assertive in shaping the landscape for the law of democracy. So in addition to this decision in 2021, we also have Marion um, Crawford versus Marion County from 2008, which made it harder to bring constitutional challenges to voting restrictions. We also have Ruscio versus Common Cause from 2019, where the court concluded that federal courts lack jurisdiction to determine the constitutionality of partisan gerrymandering. And that decision will have considerable consequences for state redistricting process, as we've seen in the last year, and we will see going forward. And then, of course, as Erwin alluded to, Shelby County versus Holder, that 2013 decision, which gutted the preclearance requirements of the Voting Rights Act. And to be very clear, in doing so, in that five to four opinion authored by Chief Justice Roberts, the Chief Justice noted that although preclearance was no longer going to be a viable conduit for challenging voting restrictions, Section 2 remained as a viable conduit for litigation against such restrictions. And now the court, in what I think is a very classic Roberts Court two-step, 
has now hobbled Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act in much the same way it hobbled the preclearance provision. So um, again, I think this is a very significant decision. The only other thing I will add is that the court made much of the state's interest in preventing fraud in Brnovich and in the electoral process more generally. Um, there's also another case that was decided on the same day, Americans for Prosperity versus Bonta, where the state of California had issued a provision requiring the disclosure of donors to specific charities on the ground that doing so would help the state in preventing fraud. And there, the interest in preventing fraud was utterly absent from the court's opinion striking down that California law. We're now going to do uh, the part of this event that is really tricky, which is a kind of speed round where we offer, um, as best as we can, uh, a kind of compressed uh, assessments of some of the other big, big cases, again, with the caveat that we, we really can't get to everything and, and uh, that there's a lot that we're not covering. Um, so we're going to just do little three, four minute bullets on some of the other big ticket cases that came down. Uh, Fred, I would invite you to give us uh, a quick walk through Sanchez versus Mayorkas. Sanchez in, against uh, Mayorkas is a unanimous opinion by Justice Kagan, 9-0. Uh, it's a fairly technical statutory opinion, but it could have a very significant impact on the lives of a lot of people. Uh, the court held that an individual who entered the United States unlawfully is not eligible to become a lawful permanent resident, even if he or she had been granted temporary protected status. Uh, technically, um, whether the uh, conferral of temporary protected status, uh, TPS status, um, constitutes an admission into the United States is the issue, uh, because you need to be admitted uh, into the United States to be eligible for consideration for permanent resident status. Petitioners in this case had come to the United States from El Salvador unlawfully in the 1990s. They successfully applied for temporary protected status uh, in 2001. Temporary protected status grants the ability for foreign nationals uh, to, to stay where they come from a country with unusually dangerous conditions um, and the, uh, allows them to live and to work in the United States while those condition, conditions exist. 2014, years later, they applied to become legal permanent residents. And the question was, was, had they been admitted, which is what that statute requires, had they been admitted under the temporary protected uh, status law? The unanimous view of the court is that that admission that, or that um, grant of status under the temporary protected status law does not constitute an admission. An admission. This is a statutory matter, not a constitutional matter. Congress could change this if they wish to. Uh, as we look at it today, um, as many as 400,000 current TPS residents in the United States um, could be affected by this because right now they have entered the United States without authorization, cannot seek permanent resident status because they have not technically been admitted. And Paul, um, if we think back to Justice Barrett and the confirmation hearings, the Affordable Care Act uh, turned out to be the thing that we were all uh, setting our hair on fire about. Um, it also was one that I think uh, the court decided absolutely not uh, to make a, a, a big deal over. Can you walk us through again a couple of minutes, uh, both California versus Texas, that's the challenge to the Affordable Care Act, uh, the third time at the court, and then uh, take us through Nestle versus Doe. Happy to do that. I'll start with California against Texas. Um, I, I think you know, implicit in Dahlia's introduction is the idea that if the court had actually decided the merits of the case, it would have been one of our Kind of landmark cases that we discussed at in greater length at the beginning of the program. It made the lightning round uh, because the court did not decide the merits and decided the case on standing grounds. And ultimately, the court uh, decided in an opinion by Justice Breyer, uh, joined by uh, most of the court, seven justices, I think in total, um, that the court, that the plaintiffs in this case did not have standing to challenge the law the reason for it is a little complicated. I'll try to give it in miniature, which is just basically the issue in the case goes back to the first big challenge to the Affordable Care Act. The court famously, in an opinion by the Chief Justice, saved the law's constitutionality by saying it was a valid exercise of the taxing power. 
Uh, Congress in subsequent years did two things that I think are relevant here. One, they tried to repeal the statute and didn't have the votes. The second thing they did is they managed to reduce the tax penalty for uh, not complying with the individual mandate to purchase health care insurance to zero. And then some clever person came up with the idea, well, if the statute's only constitutional because it is a taxing statute and it no longer raises any taxing revenue, maybe the statute's unconstitutional. It's a clever theory, and at least one lower court judge accepted it um, and then suggested that he would go even further and uh, invalidate the whole statute on the basis of that one provision, which struck a lot of people as an odd outcome because Congress had tried to repeal the whole statute and clearly didn't have the votes. I would have expected this case to be decided essentially on those kind of technical severability grounds. So at least personally, I wasn't expecting the court to strike down the statute in toto by any sense, but by not even reaching that issue and deciding it on the basis of standing, uh, the court relegated the case to our lightning round. Uh, Second of all, I'm gonna talk about this uh, Nestle against Doe case which is a case that might've been in our lightning round either way, but was another case actually decided on the same day as California against Texas, where the court decided less than most people had expected them to decide and decided it in a less divisive way. So if you're trying to look to Dahlia's one suggested theme that maybe the court managed to avoid some of the most divisive issues in this term, Nestle against Doe would be an example of where the court did do that and decided a case on important grounds, but less controversial grounds than were teed up. This case is one of a number of cases that has arisen in the last couple of years on the court's docket involving uh, an obscure or at least previously obscure statute that dates all the way back to the Judiciary Act of 1789, the so-called alien tort statute. Uh, They certainly didn't call it non-citizen back then, and it's been with us since 1789. The issue in the case is to what extent did this statute provide uh, a cause of action to vindicate human rights uh, abuses abroad? And the particular question in the case that was teed up is whether corporations could ever be uh, liable under the statute, specifically domestic corporations. A couple of years ago, the court decided that foreign corporations were not proper defendants under the statute. And Nestle and other large corporations were making the argument that big domestic corporations are also not defendants under the statute. Uh, Turns out we still don't know the answer to that uh, because the court said in a pretty case-specific holding that one of its other previous decisions in this area limiting the extraterritorial effect of the statute applied here such that there was no liability. Happy to talk more about it if somebody has a question or answer, but I think this ends up being another one of these cases where the court found essentially a less divisive way out. Um, Just as we had a huge immigration docket that was compressed into one case by Fred, there was a huge criminal law docket uh, that we are not going to be able to get to in anything close to uh, the fine grain we'd like to, but uh, I'm going to spike it over to Melissa. Uh, to talk uh, just for, again, a brief time uh, as you can on Jones versus Mississippi. This is uh, return of life without parole for minors. Right. So Jones versus Mississippi considered the imposition of life sentences for juveniles. Previously in 2012, the court in Miller versus Alabama determined that outside of extreme cases of permanent incorrigibility, Mandatory life sentences without paroles for juvenile offenders violated the Eighth Amendment's prohibition on cruel and unusual punishment. And in 2016's Montgomery versus Louisiana, Miller was made retroactive. In Jones, a juvenile offender who was 15 at the time of his offense challenged his life sentence under both Miller and Montgomery on the ground that the state had not determined that he was permanently incorrigible before imposing a sentence of life without parole. In a 6-3 decision, the court, with all six conservative justices um, in the majority, upheld Jones's life sentence without parole, and the court ruled that states need not make a separate assessment of permanent incorrigibility before imposing life without parole. And I think the bottom line coming out of Jones versus Mississippi is 
not simply the sort of uneven landscape for juvenile offenders, but the fact that state level criminal justice positions like DA, like state judges, is really important for determining the scope of how the juvenile justice system will be played out and how juvenile offenders will be treated under the system, given the uneven nature of these precedents. And Erwin, can you walk us through Cedar Point, which is part of, I think, uh, an increasing uh, trend towards making it harder and harder for unions to function? Yes, the case is Cedar Point Nursery versus Seed. It involves the takings clause of the Constitution, which is the government can take private property for public use, but must pay just compensation. Over time, the Supreme Court has found two ways of there being a taking. One, it calls a possessory taking. If the government confiscates or physically occupies property, that's deemed a per se taking. The other kind of taking is a regulatory taking. And here it's where regulation goes too far in the court's words, it becomes a taking, and generally requires showing that the government regulation leaves no reasonable, economically viable use of the property. This case involves a California law that requires that agricultural employers allow union organizers access to the property for up to three hours a day, 120 days a year. The failure to do so is deemed an unfair labor practice. The question before the court was, is this a possessory taking? In another six to three decision, along ideological lines, the Supreme Court said yes. Chief Justice Roberts wrote for the conservative majority and said, a key aspect of property rights is the right to exclude others. Even though this isn't a permanent grant of the ability of the unions to come on the property, it still should be regarded as a possessory taking. It's denying the ability to exclude others. Justice Breyer wrote the dissent, joined by Justice Sutherland and Kagan. He says, this is temporary. More important, he says, this is a regulation. It's not a possessory taking. I think the issue is, what about all the other laws that give government inspectors the ability to go on property for limited periods of time. Why aren't they then possessory per se takings? Chief Justice Roberts says, well, it's different if the government conditions operating a business on letting inspectors be present. But under his analysis, why isn't that still a possessory taking? Or why isn't this the government conditioning operating these agricultural enterprises on allowing the union organizers to be present? As you alluded to, Dahlia, the Roberts Court is very pro-business, it's very pro-property rights, and it's very anti-labor. All of that came together in this case, but I predict it's going to lead to a lot more challenges where there's going to be arguments that giving access to government officials should be regarded as a possessory taking. And Fred, can you close out the lightning round with just a, a quick hit on uh, United States versus Cooley, which just uh, implicates tribal police officers and their authority? United States against Cooley, if you take out the context, sounds like a garden variety Fourth Amendment case. Police officer sees a truck pulled over to the side of the road. He goes over to see if he can help. He has suspicion that there's drugs in the car. Then he has suspicion that the owner of the car may be violent. Uh, he pulls his weapon. He does a search. He indeed finds drugs. He finds weapons. Um, what's our question? The question is the officer is a Native American on a public right of way in tribal land. And the individual who was searched, Cooley, is a non-Native American. United States, again, uh, Montana against the United States, 1981 case, uh, said that the tribes do lack inherent sovereign power to exercise criminal jurisdiction over non-tribal members, but they do exercise civil authority over the conduct of non-Indians on fee lands within its reservation when the conduct threatens or has some direct effect on the political integrity, economic security, or the health or welfare of the tribe. So a unanimous opinion by Justice Breyer applies that Montana against the United States doctrine and says, in this case, this tribal officer is permitted on tribal lands to use his authority to search, stop, and seize, in this case, uh, from a non-tribal member, that actually leads to a federal prosecution on firearms uh, and drugs charges. Um, and then we're going to go to Melissa. Um, Irwin said at the beginning that in some sense, uh, whatever way you want to construe this term, 
Uh, it's probably some version of a calm before a storm. And I wonder if you might just take a couple minutes and walk us through what's already docketed for next uh, term, what looks like it might be coming on the docket, and the ways in which the court's effort to, to tamp down some of the really partisan political issues uh, might detonate uh, as soon as next October. Sure. So I'm not sure um, if this is the calm before the storm is the analogy I would use. I kind of prefer the idea of thinking of this term as table setting for the feasts that will come in October term 2021. So again, already the court's docket is shaping up for a barn burner of an October 21 term. So on the court's docket is a challenge to concealed carry gun regulations. Um, this is NYSERPA versus Corlett. This case would provide the court with yet another opportunity to expand on its decision from 2008 in D.C. versus Heller. Um, Heller held that the Second Amendment protects an individual's right to keep and bear arms for traditionally lawful purposes, such as self-defense within the home. NYSERPA versus Corlett offers the court an opportunity to take the Second Amendment outside of the home. And again, the idea would be that there is a constitutional right to carry a weapon outside of the home on your person, um, concealed, and that is surely within the scope of the Second Amendment. So a much broader interpretation of the Second Amendment and an expansion of the court's logic in Heller. And if the Corlett case is likely to be a flashpoint in the upcoming term, um, I'm not sure that the conflict between gun rights and gun control regulations um, really stands as quite as controversial as what will likely be the flashpoint of the term. And that, of course, is the court's decision to take up Dobbs versus Jackson's Women's Health Center, which is a challenge to a Mississippi heartbeat law that prohibits abortion after the 15th week of pregnancy. It will be the first abortion challenge that this newly constituted court with Amy Coney Barrett replacing Ruth Bader Ginsburg will hear. Critically, the court's extant abortion jurisprudence, Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey, prohibit states from banning abortion before viability, which is usually marked at 23 weeks of pregnancy. And that would suggest that the Mississippi law that's challenged here is unconstitutional. Yet, we know that the court considered this petition for a long time. It was a, appeared in conference about 17 times before the court decided to grant certiorari, making clear that despite the state of the jurisprudence, there is considerable discussion about whether or not to take this case and perhaps some conflict over whether or not to do so. And it will surely be the case to watch next term as any decision in this case will also implicate the continued longevity of Roe versus Wade. So if abortion rights and gun rights were not enough, the court could also add the hot button issue of affirmative action to its docket for October term 2021. Um, on pending before the court is a cert petition against um, Harvard University. This is Harvard versus FAIR, Students for Fair Admissions Processes. And that would, again, present a statutory challenge to the affirmative action policies that are used at many private colleges and universities. The court, of course, could decide to sidestep this in favor of a constitutional challenge that would likely come in the form of a challenge to a public university's use of affirmative action, which also is percolating in the lower federal courts. All of this will be playing out um, from October 2021 through June of 2022, which is also the eve of the 2022 midterm elections. And I think that is something that may actually constrain the court, the prospect of the court's decisions on these hot button issues becoming fodder for electoral politics may certainly be a concern for some on the court, particularly Chief Justice Roberts, as the term plays out. So if there is going to be a limiting principle, I think the limiting principle will be what happens in electoral politics. Uh, so I think I want to start uh, just by thanking uh, the ADL for the phenomenal work it does. And as I suggested at the beginning, please have a look at uh, the materials because it'll give you a better sense of uh, what they've been focused on uh, in a really, really busy term. And I want to thank the National Constitution Center, which just does yeoman's work to put uh, the Constitution uh, at top of mind for uh, a lot of people, including my little kids, when they used to go on school trips and suddenly knew more uh, about the Constitution than I did. So uh, really important work now more than ever. 
Um, I opened with this framing question, which I, we've been batting around uh, a little bit about, was this a 6-3 court? Uh, was it a 3-3-3 court? Was it a 2-2-3-2 court? You could do this all day and all night. And the answer to all of those questions is yes. Uh, I want to thank uh, Fred Lawrence, Paul Clement, Erwin Chemerinsky, Melissa Murray, and as I said, the amazing folks both at the Constitution Center and at the ADL. I want to thank all of you uh, for tuning in. And as everybody has said, hopefully next year in Philadelphia. Thank you so much for being with us. This episode was produced by me, Jackie McDermott, along with Tanea Tauber, John Guerra, and Lana Ulrich. It was engineered by Greg Scheckler and Kevin Kilburn. Learn more about the 2020 to 2021 Supreme Court term by checking out our companion podcast, We the People. In recent episodes, we brought together experts of all viewpoints to explain the key Supreme Court decisions from this past term, highlighting the best arguments on both sides of each case. Search We the People on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. As always, please rate, review, and subscribe to Live at the National Constitution Center on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify, and join us back here next week. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jackie McDermott.